Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla, and we are pleased to have you with us as we shine a light again on what the Lord is doing here at Beeson Divinity School. Today's guest is here with us all the way from Evans, Georgia, where she serves very faithfully and fruitfully as a pastor. It is an honor to have her with us on the podcast today. Two brief announcements before Kristen introduces her. First, if you're listening to this episode shortly after it airs on October 18, then you still have time to register for our second and final preview day of the fall semester. And this preview day is actually a preview weekend. For the first time ever, we're welcoming prospective students to campus on a Friday, October 21, so that if they would like, they can spend the weekend with us getting to know our community and our city even better than is usually possible on one of these visits. Learn more and register at beesondivinity.com slash preview day. Second, our annual Reformation Heritage Lectures will take place November 1st through 3rd and will feature Dr. Ian McFarland. Dr. McFarland is the Robert W. Woodruff Professor of Theology at Emory University's Candler School of Theology. Prior, com prior to coming to Candler in 2019, he spent four years serving as Regis Professor of Divinity at the University of Cambridge in England. His lectures are entitled, Not by Bread Alone, Justification and the Christian Hope. These lectures will take place every day at 11 a.m. and are open and free to the public. We hope you will join us. All right, Kristen, who do we have on the show with us today? Thanks, Doug. We have on the show the Reverend Dr. Carolyn Moore. Dr. Moore is founding pastor of Mosaic Church in Evans, Georgia. She has practiced as an ordained pastor in the United Methodist Church since 1998. For most of that time, she has served as the founding and lead pastor of Mosaic Church, a missional community. She has a passion for creating conversations and communities that advance the kingdom of God. She currently serves as chairwoman of the Wesleyan Covenant Association's Global Council, which was responsible for the formation and launch this year of the Global Methodist Church. The author of four Bible studies and two books, her most recent book, which we will discuss with her today, called When Women Lead, will be released in September. Carolyn and her son-in-law co-host a podcast called The Art of Holiness, bringing conversations about supernatural ministry, practical holiness, and intergenerational encouragement into the church. She holds degrees from Asbury Theological Seminary and has been happily married to her husband, Steve, for 36 years. Welcome, Carolyn, to the Beeson Podcast. Such a pleasure to be with both of you guys. Thank you very much for having me and with everyone who's listening. So thankful for you taking the time to have this conversation with us. Well, we are so grateful to have you on campus, as Doug has already said. And I know I read a um, bit of a bio about you, but mm -hmm. we would love to hear you share um, about yourself, um, about your family, your upbringing, and how the Lord brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. I appreciate that opportunity to share a little bit. I was born and raised in Augusta, Georgia, which is Evans. Evans is a suburb of Augusta. So I got thrown back into the briar patch 
when I um, ended up there to, to plant the church that I serve now. Um, I was the last of six children and, uh, you know, born and raised in the birthplace of the Southern Baptist Convention and the birthplace of the Georgia Baptist Convention. Both of those were originated in Augusta, the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845 in Augusta, Georgia. So the idea of female leadership inside the church was was really foreign in our context. And um, so uh, I kind of grew up in the church when I first came to Christ. I was 12 years old, and I say first came to Christ because I'm a Methodist, and we reserved the right to get saved more than once. <laughs> and so <laughs> I I came to Christ when I was 12 years old. I I uh, heard the heard the call of God very in a, in a very mystical way. I heard the call of God when I was thirteen, and but as I said back then in Augusta, Georgia, that just wasn't a thing. And so I I tried to push that call into my adulthood, but uh, lost it somewhere along the way. I was thirty years old when I came back to uh, well, I was twenty eight when I came back to Christ, thirty when I came back to the call. And um, so that's kind of how I how I got there, got here from there. I guess mm-hmm. that's how I got here from there. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about that last part, Pastor Moore. Uh, a lot of our female listeners, a lot of our listeners uh, altogether, will be interested in hearing from you about. So, how did you sense that the Lord was leading you into pastoral ministry? Yeah, that's a great question. So go back to when I was 13 years old and first heard that call of God. I was standing in the pulpit. It was one of those Sunday night services. You remember when we used to have Sunday night worship and the, every once in a while they would let the youth lead the whole service. And that was what it was. It was a youth-led worship service that night. And they gave this little 13-year-old skinny girl a chance to do the devotional. Mm-hmm. And I still have the paper. I still have the handwritten pages um, that I had put together for that little devotional. And while I was standing in the pulpit, I heard the Lord say, this is where you belong. Mm-hmm. It was an audible voice for me in the sense that that supernatural voices can be audible to the person who hears them. Um, I stopped because I thought somebody had spoken out loud in the room and even asked people afterwards if they'd heard anything. Nobody heard it but me. So I assumed that call was for me. But that was 46 years ago. And 46 years ago in Augusta, Georgia, there just wasn't such a thing as a female in pastoral leadership. And so I I tried to hang on to it, as I said, but um, I eventually, uh, I kind of watered it down. By the time I got to college, I was going to do children's ministry, uh, Christian education, which would have been fine, except that I am a disaster in a room full of women, or excuse me, a room full of children, not a room full of women, a room full of children. And it wasn't my call. So... I ended up just getting a degree in religion, um, kind of wandering off into the wilderness. I mean, really wandered off into the wilderness. And in God's beautiful way of doing things, I, I met my husband in those wilderness years. And even on our first date, he said to me, he thought I would make a great pastor. And he had no idea what he was talking about. I mean, he didn't know I had a call on my life. Um, and I was not in any way indicating that I had a call on my life in that season. But... Um, but he, but he had that word for me, and it kind of stuck with both of us for years. It's kind of in the back of my mind, his mind maybe. And then when I came back to Christ through Bible Study Fellowship, um, the word started jumping off the page as I began to study the Scripture. One night I, I, um, I just asked the Lord, is this all there is? I mean, I had a good job. I had 
two cars. A, uh, I had a, a little girl. I had a house. Is this all there is to life? Is this what you're supposed to do? And the Lord said to me, when I asked that question, is this all there is? I heard him say, just say yes. And when I heard that, I really knew in my spirit that was the Lord just kind of drumming his fingers, waiting for me to answer the call of the 13-year-old. And so with a lot of fear and trembling, because I was far from the kingdom, I said yes. And um, my husband immediately was supportive. He, he said that night, I've just been waiting years to, to win that argument. <laughs> so, um, And he's been that way ever since. He's been a tremendous supporter of my ministry and his, and his, his kind of way of saying it is, when somebody in a marriage sees the open door, you're supposed to hold it open so the other person can walk through. And that's the way he has always been. When we've, as we've made moves, as we've answered this call, as, as this call has evolved over the years, he has always been right there holding the door open so I can walk through. Not only are you a pastor, but you are really a church planter. Mm -hmm. You planted your church in mm -hmm. 2003. Can you tell us about that journey? What led you to plant a new church? Um, and we'd love to hear about the history of your church and where it is today and um, its distinctives. Okay. I love this. I love these questions. I just love talking about how um, the Lord really um, inspired me toward church planting. I, I grew up in a mainline traditional denomination. I didn't even know churches could be planted. I don't know where they thought they came from. And I just thought, you know, they just show up on every corner. In the South, they definitely just show up on every corner. And so I didn't really think of myself as a, an entrepreneur or as a church planner at all when I went to seminary. But somewhere in seminary, I began to get sort of obsessed by this question. If, if this church that we have now, Big C Church, is this the church Jesus meant when he ascended into heaven and handed it to us? Is this what he meant? And I, I became sort of obsessed with what that would, you know, what, is that the answer? Is there a true church out there? Is there a more authentic expression of church? And I started calling all over the country. I would call people I know and ask, where have you seen the authentic church at work? Where? And over and over, as I began to call people and then have them refer me to other people, I literally called from one coast to the other coast, just for my own personal edification. Was not, I was in seminary, but this was not for a class. I, um, over and over, I heard people uh, refer me to the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., it's this little church that was started just after World War II by a man named Gordon Cosby. It was meant to be an ecumenical expression. So it wasn't so much that they were, tr it wasn't really non-denominational so much as come and, it's much like Beeson, you know, come and bring all of who you are into this community and, and let's find the parts of us that agree and let's find community together. And, and, and then let's begin to serve our city together. This was the Church of the Savior. They never got to be more than about 150 people strong, but their missions in the city were huge. Like They started a four-story hospital for homeless people, completely staffed by doctors and nurses. They, they would buy up um, tenement buildings that were condemned, and they would refurbish them and then offer them at 40% of market value to widows and orphans. They started an after-school program for children that attracted hundreds of children. 
they they started a retreat center just outside the city um, for for people who needed to you know get away for a while, as Jesus would say. Um, all these different um, missions. They started an evangelistic coffee house in one of the poorest sections of of, um, of Washington. All of these little missions were were um, like little churches in their own right. But then the people, the, the different missional communities or different missional groups would come together for worship and, and celebrate what God was doing among them. You couldn't be in the Church of the Savior without knowing your gifts and your call uh, because you, you really connected through the groups. And I was just fascinated by that when I heard about it. Um, I, Willow Creek, Saddleback, uh, North Point, some of the huge megachurches, um, the names of which we know now, they can trace their small group system back to Gordon Cosby. <laughs> he was just a tremendous influence. And as I said, his church was never more than about 150 people, but they had a tremendous footprint in Washington, D.C., and they have a tremendous footprint on the shape of, of American Christianity. So as I went and studied the Church of the Savior. They had a resident writer. Her name was Elizabeth O'Connor. Read all her books. My husband and I visited there once. We really thought we were going to be called to the Church of the Savior because I was deeply moved by this idea of a true missional community. And within an hour of being there, literally within an hour of being there, the two of us separately heard from the Lord that the Church of the Savior doesn't need two more members, but the Methodist Church could use the Church of the Savior. And so, with that sort of fire in my bones and that model to look at, I became very interested in the idea of planting a, a missional community after the spirit of the Church of the Savior. And when I came back to the, after I graduated from seminary, came back to North Georgia Conference, the United Methodist Church, I fully expected to plant a church. And um, the the folks who were leading the church development office in that day, it was just, they just had not had examples. They had not had successful examples of women planters. There's still precious few of us today. But because they just never had any successful examples, and you only have so much money to play with, <laughs> they just were very reluctant to let me plant. So it took about five years uh, for me to, to, to get permission to plant a church. In those five intervening years, I was the associate pastor of a church, and that church had me plant a congregation across the street from their church. They wanted to have a contemporary service, and we, we did it in a theater right across the street from the church. So I got a little church planning on training wheels, and then uh, when they finally agreed to let me plant, they sent me to, to the suburbs of Augusta, Georgia, which is not the easiest place to plant, <laughs> to, to be a female planter or to plant a missional community. But that was the, that was the opportunity I was given and I was hungry. So I took it and I've been there ever since for 19 years. And we have been slowly growing this missional community. And, um, at some point, I, I think it was probably four years ago, we began to see that our local missions, well, not nearly so well developed as what we'd seen as what I'd seen at the Church of the Savior. They were beginning to be pretty well developed, and we felt like the best way to support those local ministries was to separate them and put them under the umbrella of a separate nonprofit. It's all under the same roof. 
We have Mosaic Church and the Mosaic Center under one roof. But having a separate nonprofit allows people who might not volunteer for my church to volunteer for these ministries because they're volunteering for a nonprofit. And it also allows us to seek grant funding. There are grant funders who are very happy to fund Christian ministries. They just, their bylaws won't allow them to fund a church directly. So, um, so that's what we did. We started a separate nonprofit. And when we did that and began to get both uh, funding and attention from that direction, our ministries really began to mature. So today we have six um, different ministries under that umbrella. We have a thing called Women of Worth for women who um, are coming out of incarceration or otherwise lived rough lives and somehow need to start over again. And we, we pair them with mentors from the community and help them to get their lives back on track. We have a thing called Exceptional Circles that uh, is both applied behavioral analysis for children with disabilities. That goes on in our church all, all week long. And also uh, twice a month social activities for young adults with disabilities. So between those two, we see about 100 people with disabilities every month, some of them every single day of the week. Um, we ha and, and, and under that ministry, we have an inclusive playground. We have a sensory room. We've really developed that, that part of our, our, of our outreach into the communities because I think everybody deserves a church, everybody. And sometimes it's hard for the families of those with special needs to really feel themselves as welcome in a church when volunteers don't exactly know how to handle special needs. So we have that. We have Free Tuesdays, which is for um, uh, recovery. We do um, all kinds of recovery through that. We do GED tutoring twice a week at our main campus. And we also have um, a person on staff now at, um, at a low and no income apartment complex for adults with disabilities. So that person is there all day, every day, um, stirring up things like Bible studies and recovery groups and uh, other programs to help um, adults with disabilities to move forward with their lives. And we, we are just about, to, like within weeks, of starting another GED tutoring program at that location. And we have um, a pantry, but it's, it's a closed pantry, which means we don't just open it up to anybody walking off the street. It's really there to help us open doors to, um, there's a veterans center in Augusta and, and also that low and no income apartment complex. We, we take food, we use that to just as an invitational piece so we can pray with people and then begin to invite them into community, tell them about our groups and help them to get connected. Every single thing we do, we do for the sake of connecting folks to community. We say community is essential. And so um, we, we don't do mercy ministry so well, the kind of drop in, drop out stuff. What we do is relational all the way to its core and very much for the sake of getting people in community where they can hear about Jesus and begin to grow in their faith. We're Methodists, so it's all about sanctification for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. And that's a great segue to the next question we want to ask you about. You sound like a fantastic leader. <laughs> <laughs> and you just so happen to have a new book called When Women, when Women Lead. Yeah. Embrace Your Authority, Move Beyond Barriers, and Find Joy in Leading Others. We want our listeners to hear about it. What are you doing in that book, and how are you praying that the Lord will use it to bless other people? 
Well, it's, I wrote the book because I'm really not that great a leader, actually. <laughs> but I was trying to figure out what the what's why is it that I can't seem to do the same things as my male colleagues. For 19 years, I've been about the work of planting a church, and mine was a parachute drop. There was no congregation waiting for me or, 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 or splitting off for my sake. This was just me, my husband, and my daughter dropping into a city and starting from nothing. And I'd see my, my, my amazing, good, love them very much, male colleagues doing the same thing, and they would just explode. You know, they, my, my friends have those what I call big box rapid growth church plants. They just, they dropped in, they, they created a crowd, they built a big building, and they, they just began these ministries very quickly. And I couldn't seem to make that happen. I assume part of it is because God called me to create a missional community, not a big box rapid growth church. But also, there was just this thing, like, I'm doing all the stuff they're doing. Why can't I make it work like they make it work? And I know I'm not the brightest bulb in the leadership box, but it did seem to me that they weren't that much brighter. <laughs> and so and so I would, I would ask, and maybe some of it is because I'm female. And people would say, no, no, you're great. You're fine. It's not that at all. But when, and, and people mean well when they say that, but that can be crazy making too, because if, okay, well, if it's not my gender, then it must be me. What is it about me? I can't figure it out. And it would just, it was crazy making. So somewhere along the way, I, I um, began, I did that same sort of obsessive thing that I did with the Church of the Savior. I just started calling all over the country looking for female church planters. And I found that there really aren't that many of us. I found a woman named Mary Kate Morse. She's a professor at Fuller Seminary now. She's an amazing woman. She's a, uh, out of the Foursquare tradition, had planted two congregations. She just happened to be in Atlanta the, the week I found her. So I rode to Atlanta and was sitting with her in a pizza joint, and, and I said, I just want to figure out what are the barriers women face and how do we help women lead past those barriers so they don't burn out, so they can be successful in ministry, whether it's planting or otherwise? And she said, that sounds like a doctorate to me. That sounds like the burning question you have before you go get your doctorate. And I went, that can't be it. I'm sure that's not it. <laughs> I just know God is not. He knows my GPA. He's not going to ask us to do that again. But, um, but, but I ended up going and getting my, my, my doctorate of ministry on that question. I, I, I just wanted to answer that question. What does it look like when women plant? How do they, what barriers do they face and how do they lead past them so they can, so they can plant successfully? And in the course of that study, I discovered that the principal, principles I was learning for planters, they work across the board. They actually work whether you're in senior leadership in a church or if you're just leading a ministry in a church or if you're just leading a nonprofit or if you're just leading in any way. These same principles work. I discovered that there were six barriers uh, or at least six that I focused on for women in spiritual leadership. And then, and then I began to, to just dig around and find what are the strategies that um, that can r release women into successful ministry so that, as that subtitle says, they can find joy in leading others. And um, so that's what the book is. It's a, it's a handbook of, um, of barriers and strategies that, that help women to become more educated mm -hmm. about um, what it means to lead. 
Ed Stetzer and Warren Byrd did what was, at the time, the most extensive survey of church planters in the country. It wasn't just women planters. It was just church planters in general. And they discovered in that study that when planters are made aware of the challenges, not the strategies, just the challenges, they become 400% more likely to succeed. Just knowing the, just knowing the size of the mountain helps you gauge how fast you can climb it and what energy you need to get to the top. Um, I went and looked in the Small Business Administration's database, and I discovered the exact same uh, statistic, that when entrepreneurs, small business owners, are aware of the, of the barriers or the challenges they face, they are far more likely to succeed than when they go in um, sort of, you know, blinded by... Uh, dreams of grandiosity. Um, they're so much more likely to succeed for, over the long haul. And the critical years are years five through 10. Whether you're a planter or just a pastor or just a leader, it's those are, you know, those are the years where you start to say, you know what? Selling shoes in a department store starts to look really good about now. I think God has called me <laughs> to say, would you like that in a brown? <laughs> so, so it's those, it's those, it's those years after you get started when the shine has worn off, when we really need to know what we're doing. So this book is not just for the people just getting started. It's for the people who are well along on their journey and need to hear, first of all, you're not crazy. Second of all, you can climb this mountain. And some of the things that you sense, even intuitively, they're real. There are studies that show these things are real. We're not going to get over them today. So your choice as a leader is to figure out what strategies work for you so that you can continue to welcome and advance the kingdom of God. I wonder if you can tell us what some of those obstacles are for women in church leadership and mm -hmm. what are some strategies that you have found to be helpful in overcoming those obstacles? Great question, and um, such an interesting question to answer in this context, because one of the major strategies is, excuse me, one of the major barriers is theological. Half the Christian world does not have a place for women in senior leadership in, in, in their churches, and so that means that any woman who is, say, planting a church like I was, is fishing from half the pond, Right. Um, and, and even just understanding that, that you are, that you'll have a different group of people in your, um, in your congregation. You'll have folks who maybe have no scriptural knowledge and don't even know what the Bible says about women in scriptural leadership. Um, you may have, you have women, folks in your congregation who grew up in a, in a um, tradition that didn't accept women in leadership. And now they're in your congregation. They may not be saying anything about their upbringing, but something inside there is telling them, mom's not going to like this very much, right? <laughs> so just understanding the theological barrier. I talk about that. I talk about the kind of both sides of that, of that argue, or debate or, or, or theological um, construct. And then I just talk about, how, so how do you live in that world without making that, without being angry? How do you live there peacefully? Um, a second barrier is related. It's the perception barrier. And this one really kind of broadens that theological question because we live in a fallen world. Genesis 1 and 2 made us a partnership, but Genesis 3 made us a hierarchy. 
And we all live on this side of Genesis 3, right? So all of us, whether we're Christian or not Christian, Americans or Iranian or it, wherever we live in the world, we're all living on this side of the, fall, of the fall, and we all have this internal sense of somebody's supposed to be better than somebody else. We do it in all kinds of ways, you know? I mean, you can, you can your football teams, you know, when somebody's got to be better than somebody else. Ice cream flavors, somebody's got to be better than somebody else. And we definitely do that with things like race and with, with gender. We, somebody's got to be better than somebody else. And even if we don't think we carry that, we all carry the mark of the fall. So we're all kind of walking around with this internal something inside us fighting against the, um, the notion that we were created to be partners on this journey. That internal perception that others have of me as a leader in the church can also have an impact on how I feel about myself, how I perceive myself. So that perception barrier goes both ways. It's how you see me, but it's how your seeing me also affects how I see me. I find myself over time um, questioning whether I, you know, maybe I should, maybe I should, you know, not be doing this or, or am I on my bad days? Am I really called to this? Um, I had, had a denominational leader say to me that he noticed that women tended to apologize their way into rooms. I noticed that often, even when I've been invited to a table, I question whether I should be at the table, even if I was invited to the table, should I be at this table? It's that kind of internal wrestling that we constantly have with ourselves that keeps us from being able to do what Jesus told us to do, which is to take authority, <laughs> to, to take authority, to, to cast out demons, cure disease, proclaim the kingdom, and heal the sick. So perception is another barrier. We need to, that's one of those things. The, the more you know, the better off you'll be because we're not going to cure the fall. <laughs> Jesus is the only one who's going to be. Jesus has done the work. We're waiting for his coming again. And when Jesus comes back, we will all be back on the created side again. But until then, we live in a fallen world. So just understanding that, understanding how people come into or come at this is going to be a big deal. And then there are other more practical things like the resource barrier. If there's very few women in leadership, then the resources to support them will be smaller. Um, there are only so many dollars to go around. There's only so many coaches. There's only so many mentors. And so um, often they will, th those, those, those dollars, those coaches, those mentors will cater to the larger market, which is male. Um, another barrier has to do with our, just our, our biology. Women have stages of life that are more obviously marked maybe than the stages that a man goes through um, and that we do carry children and bear them and bring them up in the world and we're the ones who know where their vaccination records are more likely than not not all the time but I don't, stereotypes do exist for a reason you know we're, we're the ones who who have uh, a more nurturing style about ourselves often and um and then there's middle age when a whole other set of factors come to play in our lives. And we need to make decisions about exactly how we handle that and what we can handle. I say to women all the time, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. Right? So those are just some of the barriers. And then 
some of the strategies to lead past them, I mean, it all begins, and this doesn't matter whether you're male or female, it begins with your identity. If you don't know who you are in Christ, you're sunk as a leader <laughs> until you know who you are in Jesus. And so I give some real practical exercises and ways for, for folks to really explore and, and uh, better understand who they are in Christ. Because when I know who I am in Christ, I can do what Paul said. After I've done everything else, stand. Um, and then also taking authority. And in, in my tradition... When you lay hands on a person who is being ordained, you are told, take authority to do the work of the church. Um, but so often we stand up from there and we leave the authority at the altar <laughs> and we go out and we live in self-doubt and fear and a constant need for approval, asking for that authority to come from the people in front of us instead of from the Lord himself. And so really understanding what it means to walk in the authority that's been given you as a person who has been given specific gifts and a call, whatever those gifts, whatever that call. And then the very practical resources that we need, if, if, if resources are an issue, then I need to go find the resources I need in order to, to, to do the work I've been given to do. I don't need to whine about it. <laughs> Whining is not a spiritual gift. <laughs> I, I, need, I need to go out and find those resources. So learning how to negotiate for my salary, learning how to budget, um, lear learning how uh, to go find mentors and ask for them to be a mentor, not waiting passively for somebody to come and find me. Being assertive and finding door openers. If, if my friend Brian knows where funding is for my ministry, I need to ask Brian to open that door for me so that, so that I can get where I need to go. Once I'm in the room, it's up to me. But Brian may be the person who opens that door for me so that I can uh, find the resources that I need. So those are some of the ways that we lead past, both spiritually and practically, so we can do the work God called us to do. It's been a wonderful conversation. I'm sorry to say we're about out of time. We want our listeners to know that uh, Dr. Moore preached a marvelous chapel sermon this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 17 called The God Who Fights For Us. And Kristen, I think we'll have that posted in the next few days. We encourage you to go check it out online. Uh, I don't want to conclude this conversation, though, Dr. Moore, without asking you a question that Kristen and I ask of all of our guests. All right. And that is, what's the Lord doing in your life these days? What is he teaching you right now? Boy, you know, you guys, I, I got an advance notice of that question, and it sent me, like, really thinking, what, what, which one of the things do I want to talk about? <laughs> because I'm at a seam right now. In my, in my life, I'm at this really interesting seam where I am waiting and watching with God for what's next. And I have to tell you, you know, when you're in a seam— like a, a little a space between what's come, what's been before you, and what's in front of you. Um, it, it's, it's, you, 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 can, you can spend every waking second looking for God, like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. Where is he? Where is he? Oswald Chambers said something in one of his uh, devotional things with, with my utmost for his highest that just really stood out to me recently. And it was, rather than watching for God, Watch with God. And that's become my thing. It's given me a lot of peace and a lot of uh, a, a, a better sense of settled purpose. My place in this seam 
is to watch with God. And whatever it is that's in front of me, it's going to unfold, and I am going to know it when I see it. But while I'm waiting, I'm having a blast um, raising up a next generation of leaders in my own church, and I'm just thrilled. We have two in seminary right now. Well, one has just graduated, and, um, and he'll take my spot one day at my church. I just am really excited to see the next generation get raised up. And I'm really, really excited about a, an opportunity to talk to more women about what it means, what happens when women lead. And I sit in the seam, and I wait with God and watch with God, and I'm so excited to see it when it shows up over the horizon. Well, we sure are grateful that you were here with us today, helping us uh, to raise up the next generation of pastors for the Lord's Church. What a pleasure. Great, great privilege to be in that amazing room sharing the Word of God. Thank you. We are deeply grateful to you. And to you as well, our listeners, you have been listening to the Reverend Dr. Carolyn Moore. She is the founding pastor, the lead pastor of Mosaic Church in Evans, Georgia. She preached a wonderful sermon for us today and has been spending time with us on campus. Uh, Please uh, tune in to our website and listen to her sermon online. I'm sure it'll be there in the next couple of days. Uh, Please remember, we love you. We're praying for you. We ask you to pray for us, and we say goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.